Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Anne, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, and gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. I'd like to welcome Victor to the show. Hi, Victor. Hi, Anne. Uh, welcome today. Victor is a member of Al-Anon Family Groups and will be sharing his journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and how Al-Anon has helped him cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So, Victor, would you just like to start by just telling us what it was like growing up in a family affected by alcoholism? Um, yeah, I would, and I'd be happy to do that. I, <clears throat> I just want to point out a couple of things. I don't know how totally relevant it all is, but um, I identify and come to Al-Anon because I grew up in a family affected by alcoholism. Um, so I identify as an adult child of an alcoholic and you know, a lot of people that come to Al-Anon might not have grown up in a family like that, um, but they married someone who turned out to be, you know, a problem drinker or an alcoholic. Um, and other people who come to the program have a friend or, you know, perhaps even a child who's an addict or an alcoholic. Um, and, yeah, so... I come to Al-Anon because I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. And also, I just want to mention my actual name is not Victor. Um, but, you know, in the per for the purposes of anonymity, um, which is a big aspect of the program, you know, it's important um, that I don't... No one gets hurt, you know. Um, if, for instance, if a sibling or someone from my family of origin should hear this and they disagree and then start an argument, you know, that's that is what the family disease is like. You know, it's there's no easy answers. Um, yeah, so I grew up in a home that was violent. My father was always drunk. Um, you know, I remember him as this ravaging red-faced monster, you know, and he was always angry and very violent, very violent. And if there was an actual violence occurring, there was the threat, you know. Um, I was just thinking or remembering this morning, you know, after, you know, you've been, this sort of thing's gone on for so many years. It's sort of a bit like a beaten animal, you know, and if you see a dark look on someone's face, you know, the fear and the shuddering starts to happen. And uh, 
you know, so I was controlled eventually by other people's moods. There was uh, six children in the family, one girl and five boys, you know. I feel so sorry for my sister um, and my parents, you know, literally tortured her into actual insanity, um, you know, devastating sort of stuff. And her brothers, you know, laughed at her. I, I can't, you know, I couldn't understand it. You know, for me, it was clear as day that, um, you know, this abusive sort of behaviour was what had caused her anguish and, the, you know, the sarcasm and the torture, um, the sarcasm and the physical beatings as well as, yeah, anyway, just horrific sort of stuff. Like I never need to watch a horror movie um, that was horrific enough. Um, you know, people find it hard to believe that, uh, you know, I say that, my father was never happy. He was always angry and people go, well, that can't be right, you know. Um, but in fact, I was in Al-Anon for five years before I realised that my father had never spoken to me like a human being. He'd never said, you know, hi, welcome home or, you know. He, uh, once when I was much older and I came back to visit my family, he I had, you know, they hadn't seen me for years and he looked at me and he went, oh, it's you. You know, um, that's just what he was like, selfish. I want to swear, but anyway, um, that's, you know, what they call the family disease. You know, it's called the family disease because everyone gets affected and in that chaos of bickering and fighting and physical abuse, um, you know, I lost any sort of chance of having an in innocence in childhood. Um, you know, my for me to get away from it from them was um, to go and play in the bush. And you know, this is the fortunate thing for me, as we lived, you know, in a bushy sort of area, and there was creeks and to play in, and trees and other kids to play with. We just disappear all day, you know. If I was home. And because um, you didn't want to be in the house, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of your coping mechanisms was just to exit the situation. Um, can you talk about any other coping methods that you had or any decisions that you made as a child uh, about how you would deal with the situation that you were in? Um. I can look back at it now, but of course, as a child, I was just doing what was instinctual. Um, and, you know, my instinctual drive was to heal the situation. That was just part of my personality, you know. Um, I've come to see that. Uh, you know, I thought if I could make everyone laugh, so, you know, I became a bit of a comedian and... Uh, um, you know, and my brothers were also could be very funny. Um, and so we had this sort of humor, but it was, you know, it was on the edge, it was intense. And for other people, anyone else that came into the environment, um, it was like they'd be looking around, like, what's going on here? Because it was, 
yeah, it was so in, um, in I want to say introvert or something yeah, for the family. Uh, this was another aspect of the family was um, that I didn't know any of my relatives. So I believe my parents had relatives, but I, you know, was never introduced to them. And um, my parents didn't have friends that came to the house. Um, and in that um, state of isolation, you know, they say that like alcoholism can really run rampant in that. So my father could get away with doing whatever he wanted to. Um, my mother was not an alcoholic, but she had a terrible childhood, a terrible life. You know, it was sort of pretty rotten. It was very rotten what happened to her. And then she married my father. And um, I think for a want of a bit, anything better to do, she um, started behaving like him. I guess if you can't beat him, you know, join him. <laughs> And, um, you know, by the end of it, when I was a young adult, she'd be holding me back, you know, and while well, he was throwing the punches to stop me from fighting back, you know. Um, my parents, as I said, had six children and that was too much, you know, it was confusing. And um, as it sort of, as things settled out, you know, and I became a young teenager and stuff, you know, um, what ended up happening, because the disease, they say, is progressive, it gets worse and worse if nothing's done about it. Um, I had one brother who was very much like my father. And as it turned out, you know, my parents actually said to me one time when I'd gone back to visit them and I'd done all this work on their house for them, um, they must have been off th talking about it and uh, they came out and said to me, you know, you'll never be anything to us. We don't love you. We love your brother, uh, the one that's in the army. And um, I remember sitting at the table as a young adult thinking to myself, oh, my God, I've got idiots for parents. Um, that was my, you know, normal sort of go-to. So I guess one of those coping mechanisms I used was this sort of ironic humour, facetious humour, yeah. So you talked about this uh, abusive situation that you were in and how uh, your response to that was to become someone who wanted to save people, who um, was controlled by other people's moods, um, who wanted to heal the situation and who tried to do that with humour. Um, could you talk about how that showed up in your life as a young adult after you moved out of the family situation? So, you know, we're talking about my coping mechanism and we call it the family disease. You know, uh, I've come to love these terms because it helped put a definition around what I was struggling with in my life. And I just want to say, you know, there was uh, six children in that family. So one of my coping mechanisms was to try and heal the situation and make it better and use humour, etc. I just want to say all of the children were affected. So, you know, I've got siblings that are alcohol and drug addicts. The eldest one, when he 
got married and had children in order to stop beating his children, who were just babies at the time. He became a born-again Christian. And so he didn't want to know me anymore because I was evil, because I wouldn't join the same, as I see it, you know, it's like not joining the same football club or something. You know, I wouldn't, I didn't believe that same thing. Um, so, you know, these, this is the family disease, how everything, you know, explodes in a, yeah, in this terrible sort of fight. <laughs> um, yeah, so all of that happened as a, as a younger person and as I started to gain my own independence. And, you know, I was independent from 12 that I can remember because I don't, you know, a lot of my childhood was blocked out from my actual memory. Um, as a young man, or uh, sorry, a teenager, probably, um, I tried to make friends with my brothers and sister, and the elder ones had all gone by then. And um, so I ran around and um, visited them, tried to make friends with them and stuff, um, and wanted to say, oh, wow, well, that was intense, eh? you know, and, uh, you know, maybe we could all be friends now. But, of course, everyone was so affected that was it just didn't work out well. It only took me about 20 years to find that out. Um, but, you know, part of that humorous sort of thing that I used as a defence mechanism, you know, I used, you know, in school days, you know, I was a class clown, um, you know, would say things, would, would, would often have the class laughing. <laughs> um, but, you know, the teachers must have, it must have been a nightmare for the teachers. I can just imagine, you know, and, you know, I can see now that... Um, I mean, I didn't know, but I was just doing the best I could. Um, and, uh, you know, that sort of humour was not always appropriate. Sometimes it was sort of cutting edge and could be, you know, described as perhaps even sarcasm at times. Um, and I guess, you know, like picking up stray dogs, you know, I couldn't make my family home better, but perhaps I could make something else better in the world. And uh, anyway, yeah, so I really had to, you know, stop doing that because it was making my life a damn misery, really. Um, I, I just want to say, you know, I've, I've always felt fortunate to have had, you know, a good bunch of friends and from when I was a young teenager, I had a real good circle of friends that we ran wild, absolutely wild, and um, went on great adventures. And, you know, this sort of stuff was what saved my life, I think. Thank you uh, so much, Victor. Um, we're going to take a short break now um, and uh, we're going to play a song called Mapenzi Business by Katanga Jr. Ma pensi, ma pensi, si chiama 
sometimes they come and visa. I am a brain, sometimes they cook the geezer. Who got too many when they are now a visa? But don't worry, only when they are now a visa. I got to fit and jam or shit on a full visa. Who are we? We wanna own our toys. Look at your mama, the fit of our visa. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. 
On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. I'm talking with Victor about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So uh, thank you. Just before the break, Victor, uh, you were talking about the effects of alcoholism on you as a person functioning in the outside world, how you became the class clown, how you were doing the best you could, um, how the situation in your house wasn't the only thing that determined your life and that you had happiness outside of the house too. I would like you to talk a little bit now about as a person who had gone through their adult life controlled by other people's moods, wanting to save people. I think you talked about picking up stray dogs. Um, what that looked like and just before you came to Al-Anon and what was it that brought you to Al-Anon? Yeah, um, thanks, Anne. Um, they say this uh, disease is cunning, baffling and powerful. You know, it, uh, it's very tricky. You know, some of the long-lasting effects of growing up in that environment was, you know, the struggle I had just being comfortable in my own skin. I was hypervigilant, which is a great word. And back in the 1970s and stuff, it was called, you know, a broad stroke sort of paranoia. <laughs> um, fortunately, that uh, terminology has been redefined um, I was oversensitive, hypersensitive to other people's thoughts, feelings, moods, opinions. Um, I didn't have much of a sense of myself, you know, who I was at the core and what I liked and who I, you know, what I wanted to do in the world. Um, and then, you know, then comes this struggle of searching for love. And I got into some terrible messes, i got to say. You know, I didn't have skills. Um, when I was a very uh, young teenager, I um, worked for someone doing deliveries on my push bike. You know, I was like 13 or so, um, and I'd be out late. Um, riding my push bike, to, delivering for the shop. And anyway, uh, as a young adult, I got into some strife and um, he offered to help me a little bit. And um, <clears throat> he said to me, don't tell your parents. Um, and I didn't realise, you know, but this man had obviously knew or, you know, could see you know, what was going on in my home. I didn't know, you know, that anyone could see that. And he was right too, you know. So, you know, there's another aspect of that that I carried into the world. There was no support mechanism. There was nowhere to go back to. There was no safety. Yeah, my parents' behaviour was appalling. Trying to make a, you know, a solid heartfelt connection with people was you know, not easy for me. And even a lot of the hippies that I hung out with, you know, you know, I remember one day sort of the having the stark realisation that, you know, a lot of them had families to go home to and places to go. Um, whereas for me, it was a bit like an endless sort of journey, really. Um, so, yeah, I 
got into my work, which, you know, I really enjoyed and sort of felt my way through the world, as in trying to go on what felt like, you know, the strongest inclination and inspiration that I had. Um, just before I got to Al-Anon, like I got to Al-Anon in my late 30s, um, I had a, you know, a marriage and divorce by that time and a child. Um, and so we were separated. Uh, but I did this great um, slab of work and then uh, I took myself for a holiday to Indonesia. Um, and I'd always been sort of interested in, you know, what was going on with me and tried to work out why the hell I felt so rotten um by the end of that holiday you know i remember i was sitting in a bar in bali feeling homicidal or suicidal you know the emotional pain turmoil was just overwhelming and but there was also a part of me that was like watching and a, a, you know another part of me that was like realizing i didn't want any of those things but that's how you know that was the split and the confusion in me um you know again i had some wonderful adventures on this at this time in indonesia and um one thing that did happen is um i went for a walk up to this volcano in the middle of bali and um this indonesian guy had attached him to my himself uh to me you know as my guide how much money have I got? And um, anyway, I said, yeah, okay. And he said, oh, I'll take you up the, uh, you know, the side that the tourists don't normally go. And we went up the backside of this volcano and I had a, a very elating experience of looking into these, um, these craters in the volcano and seeing the colours of the sulphates on the edge of the rock and him telling me how the artists in Indonesia throw tin cans into this um, crater and draw these colours out and then mix them with pigment and paint, you know. And anyway, it was quite an elating experience. And when we were walking down um, after being there, I was humming to myself. This is something that I sort of did, you know, and I was just humming like, mm, like this. And he's turned around to me and said, what's that you're saying? It sounds like a prayer, a prayer in our language. And... Uh, I said, um, oh, it's just uh, just humming. It wasn't anything really. And he said, no, the, the prayer, it's, it's like this. It says, God, I've had a hard life. Come and help make it better. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, yeah, well, that's right. That's right, you know. Um, anyway, when I got back to Australia after this trip, um, I felt desolate. You know, I looked around my apartment and went, well, I've tr tried and struggled to make, you know, a decent life and I'm just empty. And um, this made it let me a book to read before I'd gone to Indonesia and it was called At My Father's Wedding. And I remember um, reading in the book this guy saying that his father was an alcoholic and he found it was good to have a support group for that. And, you know, it just occurred to me when I got back, okay, so, you know, I started looking and I, uh, I went to this thing called Adult Children of Alcoholics and this was quite some years ago. And at the time there was only there was two other guys there and 
I went and met up with them and they sat around talking about how bad their lives had been. And I come away thinking, man, that's just making me more depressed. I can't do that. Um, eventually, I did phone up Al-Anon because it was for friends and families of alcoholics. And I thought to myself, you know, I've had enough of families and enough of alcoholics. Why would I want to go to this place? My God. Anyway, I was so desperate. I phoned up and it seemed I spoke to a little old lady on the phone or it sort of seemed like at the time and she said you know just go along to this place on Friday night you'll be right love <laughs> you know and I with trepidation in my heart I went along to this place and uh, there were these people and I've got to say the stuff they talked about rang true for me you know and I'd done a lot of searching beforehand what I understand about that now is that a lot of the searching I had done and the therapies and the talking to counsellors and all this was often just dealing with the symptoms of what we call the family disease. It wasn't dealing with the cause, which was that my father was an alcoholic. He didn't choose to be an alcoholic, but he it, it's come through his family line somewhere and he's picked it up and ran with it. Um, and it's affected me. And as much as I didn't want to accept it, I've been traumatised by that experience. It had messed me over pretty bad. And, you know, I hadn't had proper opportunity to develop as a child, you know. Um, yeah, so um, I finally surrendered and came to Al-Anon. And they asked me if I wanted to share. Yes, Anne, please ask me a question. <laughs> oh, well, I, was the que I think you were probably going to answer it anyway. I was just going to ask you, I was interested in what you did here at that first Al-Anon meeting or what happened at it, but it looks to me like you're about to tell us. So let's hear what happens. Um, yeah, so, you know, someone stood up. I remember them standing up and talking and talking about being hypersensitive to everything that was around them, you know, and I thought, oh, I could relate to that, you know. And um, there was some talking about, um, you know, the arguments and the yelling and screaming in families and uh, um, how families fight. And, you know, I could relate to this sort of stuff. Um, in the end, they asked me if I wanted to say anything. And I said I couldn't, you know. I thought I was going to cry. And um, they said, that's okay, you can cry. And I thought to myself, yeah, I don't know you people. I don't think I'm going to be sitting here crying. But um, it did, you know, started stirring up a big well of sadness. Thank you, Victor. Um, it was so interesting to hear you uh, describe your experience in Indonesia and it sounded so much, uh, in AA, they talk about the alcoholic will only get help when they reach a rock bottom. And it seemed to me you really described that, that connection between hit, hitting a rock bottom and, seek, and, and, and having a spiritual experience that seems so, to happen so often, um, and then to reach out for help. And so a big part of the 12-step program is um, reaching out to help for help to other people, but also to a power greater than ourselves. 
And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about that, con that spiritual concept that we have in the 12-step groups. Um, I'm comfortable with this. I, I could understand why people wouldn't be comfortable. And, uh, you know, part of the dilemma of the family disease was that um, as a child, for some years on and off, I went to a Catholic school and, uh, you know, um, that was pretty horrific, actually. <laughs> you know, they said I'd probably go to hell and then I'd have to go home. And it was hell. But for some reason, it didn't put me off the idea that, you know, in the world, there was something, what I would say, greater than myself or whatever or something. You know, for me, uh, I described, you know, looking into that volcano and having an elating experience, you know, um, or looking into that crater. Um, and... For me, nature has often, you know, just done things to me that I, it's a, you know, a full body sensual experience, you know, um, being immersed in water or um, looking at amazing things in the landscape or, you know, just looking at, you know, a flower, for instance, you know, and for me, I, I would wonder, you know, look at this thing, you know, I mean, I didn't make it. <laughs> it's come from somewhere. I've really, um, as I said, you know, as a young child, you know, escaping into the play in the creek um, was an escape for me. But, you know, I found a deeper connection with, you know, lots of aspects of nature from, you know, growing food in a garden to, um, you know, to enjoying your landscapes and storms and atmospheric sort of, um, you know, weather and stuff. Um, so for me, that is a power greater than myself. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to call that my higher power. I know, you know, the language in the steps and um, I can see why it might frighten people away. It sounds religious, you know, God, him, all this sort of stuff. I find for myself, I'm happy just to ignore what I don't like, don't want to hear. <laughs> so um, one thing I, you know, I don't think I would have stuck around Al-Anon um, if it had said to me, you have to believe in this or you're going to hell. I would have thought, well, flock you guys, I'm going elsewhere, you know. Um, but, you know, the truth is it's beautiful, actually. Al-Anon just says, just do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> this this thing works best um so what i found in the program was that as i mentioned before you know i wanted to heal the family i grew up in this was part of my natural inclination um and this is part of my natural self um i feel that connection uh, with something out there I know I can sit down and like meditate and send out good vibes to my daughter and she can like pick it up and she's, you know, a couple, lives a couple of thousand kilometres away. But we often talk about that sort of stuff, you know. Thank you, Victor. Uh, let's take a break and play some more music. This is the song Hot Desert Sun by Catamoni. 
generate with your desire You radiate the spark that blazes the fire So initiate, create thoughts and motivate and inspire Have faith in yourself, your life and trust that you're divine For you are powerful beyond imagination Your vibration, your potential that exceeds your mind's perceived limitations So learn to give out, learn to receive For all that you believe you are, it's all that you will be Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday. Put some black and deadly sound. Appreciate Community Radio 855 on the AM dial. Voice of the people's the people. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday. Put some black and deadly sound. Appreciate Community Radio 855 on the AM dial. Voice of the people's the people. Friday. This is Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Victor about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alanon. You've spoken uh, so eloquently about uh, you first coming to Alanon and where your life was at that point. And it's been wonderful to hear of the happiness that's existed in your life alongside the devastation in your family. I'm wondering if you can talk now about your recovery in Al-Anon. Uh, we talk about Al-Anon being a, a group to help people suffering from a family disease. And therefore, we talk about recovery from that disease. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I'd love to and. Uh... It just occurred to me, you know, while you were playing that song that, uh, you know, another one of my primary things like that desire for um, health and happiness was um, music, you know. Music was so important to my soul, you know, it, uh, um, and still today, you know, um, I, you know, love beats and rhythms and sounds 
only the ones I like, of course, the ones there's plenty out there I don't like, of very specific sort of tastes um, that work for me. But that uh, is another aspect of the higher power that stirs my soul. <clears throat> I want to mention that, you know, I came into the program and it can be frightening, you know, because I repressed so much stuff for so many years, never been able to tell anyone. And i got to say, you know, before I came to Al-Anon, if I did mention to anyone stuff about my where I grew up and how I grew up, it was too much for people to cope with. And, and I've got to say that's probably been the case with some counsellors and stuff as well. They go, whoa, that's just too intense, man. I can't deal with that. And I have heard other people, you know, newcomers into the program, sort of into Al-Anon, going, all of a sudden I'm having all these feelings. I didn't, I don't think I felt this bad before. I've got to say, you know, it might seem like that at the beginning, um, and I've heard of this in other sort of spiritual disciplines as well. I'm learning all this stuff about myself. All of a sudden I have all this evidence to prove that, uh, you know, all this rotten stuff. Anyway, anyway, what I want to say is that uh, that stuff calms down. It passes after a while. But, yeah, the first few years I found quite difficult because I couldn't really speak about what had happened to me I didn't know how to put words around that you know uh, interestingly well it's interesting for me because I'm talking about me but uh, um, when I first came into the program I was working and I was standing up in front of my work at that time anyway I was standing up in front of hundreds of people by myself and talking to them uh, you know for hours on end and people would be entertained and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, I remember one day, you know, I'd stood up by myself and spoken to like 600 people. And I'd gone to an Al-Anon meeting that evening and I'd just been in Al-Anon for, you know, a few months or whatever. And um, they'd said to me, "Did I? would I like to stand up and do a person, what they call a personal story, you know, talk about. And I shook my I couldn't do it. I couldn't actually speak because it was too close or it was too unknown I didn't know how to wrap words around it I didn't know yeah that was the confusion that was inside of me and um, you know I remember going home that night standing in the shower and thinking to myself next time those people ask you you've got to try it you know and the next time I was asked to stand up and speak I did but I had to hold on to a chair because my head was spinning around and around talking about all this stuff I'd never spoken about you know it was obvious to me I had layers and layers of grief sadness anger what I felt was hatred at the time which is, of course was me wanting love and being abandoned and rejected and so instead of it being love it was violent sort of feeling inside of myself um yeah so it can be quite sort of confronting at first. And I'd sit in meetings and people would say, oh, you know, the problem drinker did this, blah, blah, blah. And everyone in the room would break up laughing. <laughs> and I'd think, how can they do that? I would be so, like, irritated, you know. And um, uh, one of the effects of this disease for me was this overthinking what they what I've heard described as analysis paralysis. So as a young child, you know, I was trying to think, what can I do to fix this? 
damn situation up. So my mind got on this like a treadmill of around, around, around. And of course, it's like a stuck record of jump you know, around, jump, not going anywhere helpful. You know, it's a bit like worry. It's activity, but it's not getting me anywhere helpful. It's sort of digging me deeper into a hole. What I found happened, I mention it because it was such an important thing for me. After Slowly over time of being in the meeting, slowly my mind would calm down. I mean, I had the understandings of what meditation was. And in fact, you know, uh, you mentioned about the spiritual thing there. You asked me that question earlier, but um, when I was 19 years old, I got time off work and I went and did a a meditation course that went for 10 days and uh, it's pretty hard experience and I you know remember waking up from nightmares in the night and uh, it really stirred stuff up for me but it actually has been a foundation for me being able to center myself and be okay in myself and have you know work on this what I would call a spiritual connection, which I'm happy to talk about more to get, you know, more clarification on what that is. Recovery, you know, is a beautiful thing, beautiful description of what happens, you know, I can recover some self-esteem. One of the things I learned early on, and I said I was standing up in front of all these people talking and being entertaining um, and I had this Al-Anon daily reader and I was reading it and it, it, it told me you know on this particular day that what I do I don't do for the gratification of people coming up and patting me on the back whatever I'm doing I'm doing for myself and um, it turned my world around I realized you know when I was and because I, I was doing this work at the time I could go and stand in front of these people and Whatever happened in the end, it wasn't about whether they liked it or not. You know, it was about whether I felt I'd done a, you know, a good job if I put the best I could into it. And uh, God, it made my life so much easier. <laughs> instead of, you know, someone said this thing to me, you know, like, you know, when you go out there, instead of trying to get them to love you, go out there and show you how, show them how much you love them, and that you know resonated back to that original core theme myself it was all of a sudden you know instead of trying to get love and falling into messes I could just go out and give it it was yeah a beautiful turnaround for me in my life would you like to ask me a question (laughs) um uh, yes I was just wondering how, how you are now with some of your your other habits like are you still inclined to want to save people are you still inclined to be controlled by others' moods? Are you still inclined to heal situations? And if so, how, what do you do about that nowadays? Um, as I said, you know, that primary energy is, you know, part of my makeup and character. And, you know, I've got a list here beside me of some of the gifts of the program. And one of them is that, you know, now I can see the potholes in the road in front of me. So I don't have to keep falling into the same pothole. Now I can see when someone's throwing out a hook and trying to hook me in, you know, and it's been a situation in my life recently when someone asked me to be the executor on their estate and I 
did some exploration and talked it through with some Al-Anon people and realised it would be completely inappropriate. I'd be stuck in between, you know, the only family I have and it would just be, it would be a mess. Some years later, you know, it's just some things have played out now that have proven, yeah, that's great. You know, it was really great that I chose not to do that. I guess one of the things relating to your question is that Al-Anon has given me the pause factor, which, you know, is not just common to, I mean, it's not, it's common in the world is what I'm trying to get at. And that's another thing I love about Al-Anon, you know, it's not esoteric information that's secret or anything. You know, a lot of stuff is come from common wisdom that's in Al-Anon and that's really important to me you know but yeah this pause factor and I know mindfulness it's taught in schools now especially the teenagers you know before you react count to 10 or something you know when I could see a situation looming up that uh, is looking like it might be a pothole for me to you know another hole for us to dig for myself <laughs> you know I can see it coming and go there's this wonderful tool I can use I can say to people oh let me think about that and I'll get back to you. <laughs> I'd like to uh, just tell you about some of the gifts I feel. It helped me get a better connection with a power greater than myself. When I'm in a meeting, I'm with other people. I'm with a power greater than myself. Um, so it's helped me with that connection. I feel that it was my family heart that has been damaged. And I've learned from being in the program that what happened to me was like my social heart was damaged. You know, that was a environmental training, if you know what I mean. Um, but as a person, I'm not damaged goods, even though I, I felt like I was before I got into Al-Anon. You know, I felt so bad. I've learned how to be grateful, which is a beautiful thing, you know, just how to appreciate stuff. Instead of always be, being thinking, worrying, you know, tasting food and it turns to ash in my mouth, that old thing, you know, it's like um, I can appreciate tastes, sight and sound. Um, a great thing for me that came about from being in the program was that I can sleep through at night now instead of waking up at two or three in the morning worrying, worrying about everything not being able to get to sleep and then getting back to sleep and having to get up for work in the morning and feeling exhausted and wrung out. Al-Anon, you know, I found is a great self-reflecting tool. So um, people share in the meetings and I listen to what other people say and sometimes I go, oh, yeah, that's how it is for me or I could try that little thing in my life as well. And so I see myself reflected back in what other people say and do in the meetings. And likewise, you know, I say stuff, whatever comes off the top of my head and, uh, you know, it can be valuable at times for other people. I love this uh, definition of sanity is where my head, my heart and my mouth are in alignment. That's a really great place to end. Thank you very much for coming in today, Victor. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure. If you would like to find out more about Al-Anon family groups, then you can find them on 1300 252 666 or go online at alanon.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. That's all we've got time for today. 
So I'd like to thank Victor for joining me today and sharing his Alan on Family Group's recovery experience with us. Thank you, Victor. I hope that you will be able to listen again next week when we will be talking about recovery from addiction. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio from 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.